0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I wanna do it, because I wanna help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you, to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Tell your stories, you know what I'm saying? Don't let people tell you that your story is not interesting. Talk about your story from a way that people don't think you're gonna come at it, go behind it, you know what I'm saying? Get on the side of it. Tell the devil's in the details. Tell your story, whatever your position or your place is in life, whatever your particular thing is, it's amazing. And there's a way that you do it in a way that people don't see coming. And then all of a sudden, the thing that was abnormal becomes normal.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in front of a live audience. It was electric. It was incredible, and it was highly inspirational, and I know you're going to enjoy it a lot. Before I get started, I like to do a cold open where I think about what I want to say for this podcast, and the biggest thing I can let you know is this. His failure is not an option. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. But how often do you really get to see the examples firsthand? And Kenya Barris, when he was ready to create and run and executive produce his own shows, in a 12 year period before Blackish got on the air, he failed 19 times in a row. That's right, everybody. He created and wrote 19 television pilots that all failed until the 20th one was a charm with Blackish. And sometimes you ask yourself, well, is it finally going okay for me? Is it finally going in the way I want it to go? He just signed a nine figure deal with Netflix. After leaving his pact at ABC, you think to yourself, well, this guy's got it all going on. He's gotten through the failures. He fought through 19 failures in 12 years and got on the air. Must be great, right? He must be happy. He must have everything going for him. But no, he can't get a pilot going after Blackish on the network. He has to go outside of the network to do shows because his own network, for some reason, doesn't pick up any of his shows. And then he has an episode that he really wants to get on the way he wrote it and the way he created it. But the network doesn't want to put it on. They think it's too edgy. They want him to adjust some of the words, change a little bit of the wording, the scenes. But he sticks to his guns. He says, no, but it had to be shelved. And then he had to reevaluate. He had to think of his life. He had to think of what meant something to him. And the way the world works these days, it's a really, really bizarre thing because the networks, which everyone was so enamored with and wanted so badly to get in business with Netflix is changing things for a lot of these big showrunners and artists because they're presumably allowing you to do what you do. I presume that they told him that what happened at ABC with this episode would never happen at their network and that he could air it the way he wanted to air it. And creatively that's one of the most important things in the world. Money is great. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have control over your craft, you're still working for the man. And in any job you're at, the fact is you're gonna get knocked down. Will you get knocked down 19 times in a row in 12 years? It's possible, but he's an example of what can happen if you keep getting up, dusting yourself off, moving forward, and never giving up. And if you can figure out how to do all those things in whatever job you're in in this world, I can guarantee you you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that Kenya Barris has. Harry, Katz.
1: back in the house. House, house. Let's do this.
0: I want to go way, way back. Yeah, take me back to where you grew up, what your family was like, the economic <laughs> dynamic of it, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business.
1: Um, so I'm from Inglewood. It's a you know a black suburb. You know, it's the hood. Um, so my mom. It's like the Diet Hood. It's like, it's like uh, Compton Light. It's not quite. You know, um, it's not Compton or Watts, but it's also not, you know what I'm saying, Wessel. It's, you know, everyone's basically broke there. Um, I didn't know I was broke because everybody around us was broke, and you don't know that when everybody, you know. I remember nights that I didn't realize until I got older, we would <coughs> go have dinner. My mom would send us to have dinner over a friends' houses because we didn't have food, and she didn't want to say that. And I didn't realize until I got older that when they would come eat over our houses because they didn't have food. And, you know, that was sort of like the thing. Um, my mom, single mom, worked really hard. We was one of five kids. Um, I had a younger brother who died of leukemia, and I kind of like, <clears throat> that made us closer as a How family. How old were you
0: when that happened?
1: Um, I was like five. He was three. Um, so, you know, just things like that. Um... um you know, I saw how strong my mom was, you know, to, to go through that and, and do what she did and raise us. Um, my dad, who I've gotten close to over the years, at the time he was abusive with my mom. I think he was dealing with his own stuff. Um, so you were there when you saw that happening. Absolutely. My, we, we um, my mom, like in the dark of night, like we we fled. You know, my mom got away from my dad. He was abusive. And I used to be really afraid to sleep in the dark I used to always want to go sleep in my mom's room. And I think I was like 7 or 8, 6 or 7, 7 or 8, whatever. And um, my mom was like, you're getting too big to sleep in my room. You know, you have to sleep. You have you need to stay in your room. And I was like, shit. And I was like, it was, you know, I always to try to think of reasons to go in my mom's bed or whatever. And it really was probably because separation anxiety. I just was, you know, I had lost someone, someone in my family. Like it was, we were going through a lot of stuff. And, um... My mom was really, she started having a boyfriend. She was like, you can't come in my room anymore. So I remember one night I was asleep, and I swear I heard something. Like, and I was like, like Mom, she's like, go get back in the bed. I'm going to whoop your ass if you get out of the bed one more time. And um, I swear I heard something again, but I was like, I'm not going to take this you know, spanking. So I kind of just stayed there at night. That, you know, it's the boogeyman or whatever. And then it, it was a little bit louder, and my mom had obviously heard it. And I, I come and, she, and I see my mom has her little 38. That was what she, had, she was little And she was like, she could tell someone was coming in the house. And so she said, go in my room. And so I went in her room and I notice as my mom saying something, she's like all of a sudden backing up. I can kind of see her coming on the thing and she's holding the gun up. And I'm like, I'm literally, my heart's pumping. And she's like, go home, Pat, go home. Pat is my dad. So my dad has found us. He's broken in. My mom's obviously terrified, you know what I'm saying, whatever. It's middle of the night. She's going in and I'm like, Daddy, go home. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm literally like, whatever is happening. And I could see my mom trembling. And she was like, go home, Pat, go home. He was like, what are you going to do, shoot me? You are going to shoot me? And I could see in his face, and I could see in her face, she knew that this was a moment that was, it, it, he's broken in. He's found us. She was like, this is going to go bad. And she turned her face and closed her eyes, and I knew what was about to happen, and she shot him, like, you know what I'm saying, click till the, you know, till the gun went click. And, um, you know, he ran past her, and, you know, I heard the car skid off and a little bit he drove himself to the hospital. He's fine now. Um, we can't kill the devil. <laughs> um, but I, you know, those moments... My mom never we never went to counseling, never never really talked about it very much, you know what I'm saying, but those moments, for me, really helped shape I joke about it in blackish. I'm always like, you know the, the mom is shot pops or whatever, but like those moments really helped shape me and not in like a sort of like victim way, like just like I was very, very at a young age aware of the world as a really real place <clears throat> um. And it helped form my argument, my conversation. I want to talk about having guns. You know, black people have guns. I'm not an NRA nut. I don't necessarily think that I would rather all guns go away. At the same time, the idea of having a gun for me, because of how I grew up, it was not a theoretical thing. I knew that people had guns and the world was dangerous. And so I think black people's relationships to guns are different. And it's, you know, the idea that it is something very real. That it's, you know, whether I know that most people are killed guns kill more people that you know than you don't. I know all the statistics behind them, but it helped form that argument. And at the same time, it helped, you know, all the other arguments. So I kind of feel like for me, it is, I never look down at anyone. I never, you know, it's always for me, like understanding that we all have a story to tell and we've been through some shit and you never know what day someone is having when you talk to them. Um, you know, and and, you know, that's sort of the way that I try to approach every story. So
0: how did you turn your young life around, do the right thing, and get to the point where you were inspired by entertainment and point yourself in the right direction to
1: get there? Um, I didn't know people wrote that this was a job. Um, my dad, who had been married to my mom for a long time, shortly after that, like they still hadn't got officially divorced or whatever, but he had a chemical accident at General Motors where he was a uh, um, worked there and he lost one of his lungs and he got like a $3 million lawsuit or something like that. And my mom, because they had been married so long, got half the money. And to us, that was getting a billion dollars. So we moved into another neighborhood, you know, predominantly white neighborhood, so everyone, and I met some kids Fathers and you know who were television writers, I used to think that that's what made an actor good is that they knew what to say. Like, they, they were, I didn't, I didn't, I know that sounds crazy. I just didn't know that people wrote the words. I did, and so when I understood that, that was a thing, I got really into it. i grown up, TV was my babysitter. What she,
0: shows were your babysitter?
1: Oh, all the Norman Lear shows. I remember The White Shadow was my show. <laughs> I liked it. Um, all the Norman Lear shows, Gilligan's Island. Um, Twilight Zone was a big one for me. Um, you know the spelling shows. You know, Although you know I liter- literally, I watch until this day. I, I'm so sad because every time I go to ArcLight or where this ArcLight's a uh, theater in Los Angeles, I've seen everything because I go. That's my, you know, my pastime. I love the way that movies allow me just to rest my mind. So I, I so I'm sad when I've seen everything. And I'm like, oh, I gotta go see something else again. So I grew up just really loving the notion. It's to me, movies and television is magic. You know, writing a, because the notion that someone has an electrical impulse that makes them think of something, and then they can write it down on a page. Someone else is able to read that, interpret it say that I can get other people to act out these words that were just initial electrical impulse, and I can record that, and then we can edit that, and then we can show it back to people, and people will see the initial electrical impulse that you thought about acted out through all, like, that's magic. Like, that's, you know, so the idea whenever I can go and watch a great movie, even if it's a shitty movie, it's just amazing. So it was always sort of my, sort of, um, you know, rest spot for me.
0: So how do you get in college in the right program, and how do you get to the point where you're able to get that Keenan job?
1: My mom. My mom, um, she just, she wouldn't, she didn't believe in fail. Like she never took, Welfare. She always, you know, was like she. If she had to work three jobs, she never would take welfare. Um, she made us all very early buy property. She was like, "Why would you pay someone else's mortgage for when for a little bit more you can have something of your own?" Um, you know, seeing just you know a woman who wouldn't give up. You know, so I I really feel like that for me. You know, I started in a predominantly white school in, in Los Angeles um, at college, and then I transferred to, School Clark Atlanta University. Um, I was going to go to Morehouse, but <laughs> they um, they don't have a film program. And so this guy, Dr. Eichelberger, who was actually Spike Lee's mentor, who who was what I wanted to be, between Spike Lee and and Norman Lear, he went went to Clark. So I went there to try to be Spike Lee. Um, I quickly realized it's way more expensive to do, be a director because you have to get other people and get equipment and things like that, but I, all I needed was a laptop to be a writer. Um, I wrote a play, Ruby D and Ozzie Davis produced it for college, and that was the first time I was like I realized I could write. This comedian earthquake had a comedy club in Atlanta, I was doing stand-up, um, I sucked, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know Chris Tucker and um, Earthquake and Bernie, those guys would come through. And I realized I could hear people's voices. And so Bernie was. I asked Bernie if he would, if you know, I could give him some. You know, give him some jokes. He gave me like 20 bucks. You know, I don't know if he's. You know, maybe he said it one or two of those, But the point being, like, people started buying jokes, and I got to know people that way. And I realized that, that I could do that. I realized I could hear people's voices. You know, um, and then.
0: I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to berrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Tell our audience the craziest, holy shit story that you have in your entire career that no one would believe, but it happened to you or happened to somebody around you that you experienced in these rooms. I'll Um, give you an example of something that happened to me. I was doing a show with Chappelle and Peter Tolan. (laughs) After you do a run-through of the pilot, normally the network executives come down, the president comes down sometimes, and they sit around when they go through the notes. And we sit down. It was Jamie Tarsus. I'll never forget that she was the president at the Uh time. Wonderful woman. And she says, okay, Peter, on page one, I just wanted to go over this one little thing here. And he takes his script, and he (laughs) throws it at her. It hits her in the chest and flies down. He stands up over her. He says... Get another f- writer. And he just walks off. <laughs>
1: and Dave and I are just sitting there like, okay, this is television. That's hilarious. Have you heard the, uh, I'm sure you have, the, the Phil Rosenthal joke? It's, uh, so he's, they're like, um, you know, executives are giving you notes. And um, the executive goes, I think we can beat this joke, you know, on, um, and, and Phil takes a pencil out of his ear. And gives the pencil to the executive and says, "I'll give you a year." <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a year. And I just were like, you know, those moments. Like, um, he has the greatest, you know, stuff. Anyway, you know. But I, I think for me, the some of the moments are like, it's so many dicks in what we do. It's so many people who you're like, what the fuck? Like, how did you, how have you continued to be able to be this big of an asshole? You know. Um, I don't know if he's a friend or Ed Weinberger. You know what I'm saying?
0: Like Ed Weinberger was one of the greatest showrunners in the world. He was the kind of guy who would wear the white shoes, the white patent leather shoes. He was an old school guy. He worked for Norman Lear, and he ran many, many shows.
1: Uh, Cosby, too, I think? Yes. Would throw shit at people and talk to people crazy. Um you know, like just people I mean I could literally just run, run my dick list now and <laughs> <laughs> that's a long list. <laughs> um, you know, it was so the, the moment for me that I realized <laughs> I got this neck tattoo, and I was like, I said it as a joke yesterday, I was like, this is the day. It wasn't about getting tattoo, It was for me a moment where I said, I'm not, I can't go back. You know, I was like, the B of A is out. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to hire the guy now. But it was like it, I invested in myself because I was like I'm not – that was a freeing moment, you know. And that's like when I said I could get my dick list. Finally to be able to be like I can say you, you know, and not say you like just to say it, but like you can't – you're not going to ruin me. You know, even if I stopped working today, I'll be okay. Like that was a very freeing thing because I'm, I'm not going to deal with people – who I don't have to deal with anymore. You know, life's too short.
0: What was the exact moment when you got home, you sit down, you take something out of the fridge, you take a sip and you say to yourself, I'm never going to have to worry about anybody compromising what I do again.
1: I think it came shortly after I think season 2 of Blackish. At a certain point I think it was season 2 of Blackish I I came from so I had so little, you know, I think America's next top model helped me in terms of financially I knew I was going to be okay. But um I think that season 2 of Blackish I was like I'll work. I was like I don't know if I'll, you know, ever have a show again. I was like but I'll work. Um and I remember it was fighting for an episode and really knowing I'm going to quit you know, I'm like, if they don't, if they try to not, if they make me try to tell this story in a different way, I'm going to quit, and, I, and, and I'm ready to do it. Like, it wasn't like a a, sa- a saber rattle. It really was like, I'm going to quit. And I feel like that was a really freeing thing, the moment that you feel like this person can't make me do this. I, someone told me a really interesting, when you're going out for a job interview or, you know, to get, never tell them you're buying a house, never tell them you're getting married, Never tell. It sounds so, you know, crazy. But people will hold things over you if they feel like you need this job or you feel like you need the money. They will negotiate with you differently. They will, you know, you never make yourself feel like you're in a position where, of course, you need the job because you're there trying to get it. But like people hold things over you. And So I feel like the moment, the power of no is an amazing thing. The power of being able to say no and you know as a, as a manager and an artist yourself like when you have to you know whenever I would get you know offers I would always tell my agents okay we don't need to negotiate we should just take this this seems very generous that they're uh, giving us this this and they were like we have to counter I'm like I don't think so I think this feels like you know and so but the moment that you realize that you're worth more than they're giving you you know what I'm saying it's just a job of like who's getting less <laughs> you know what I'm saying like that's all it, and, and that is a, a, a big thing for me and um you know I think that that you know my oh shit moment um I think came you know for me w- this year they uh, you know I love ABC you know in the studio but like they didn't play they didn't they made me not do an episode and it changed and you know I'll talk about it soon, you know what I'm saying? Legally, I'll be able to, but they changed the course of my life very late in my life um, because it was bigger than television. It was bigger, it was was business. And, you know, for me, the notion of not, they, you know, gave us an option to sort of take some things out. And I'm like, but this isn't what this is about. And it was an episode I wrote and directed, and it hurt me. And it, it hurt me in a way that I had not been hurt before creatively. Um, and, I, you know, I went home and I talked to my kids about it, and they were like, you have to look I have to look my kids in the face and say I stood up for something. Um, and I thought that they were going to, you know, fire me and cancel the show, but I was willing to, to let it go. But that, you know, that just happened seven months ago. So it changed the course of my life, and um, I'm really glad that I stood up for it, you know, for something I really believed in, but it... Um, it was my oh shit moment that you realize that this is still a business, you know, in a, in a big way, um, and I think there was a moment for me that I realized that network television wasn't for me anymore, you know, that, the version of that, because you have to, you're, you're paying, you have so many bosses that you're trying to serve, and I like all the people, and I love, you know, the opportunities, but I, I'm at a place now where I want to talk about things in the way that I want to talk about them um and be able to, you know, help other people by being honest and real and telling about my fuck ups and we did an episode about getting divorced and I got divorced and you know um it was really hard and it was really, you know, the hardest thing I went through but actually having that moment where I could talk about I can, growing up I never saw couples argue on television so when I got in a relationship and I was like I didn't Remember, you know what it was like to sort of see people not go through things, you know, go through things that weren't great, and that's what I wanted to do. And I got a chance to do that because of other things we've done. So anyway, that was the the moment you realize when you are going to be honest and real, you have to sort of be willing to go there, even if people hate it. One, Uno. Uno.
0: two, three, four, five, six. six. Six degrees of separation. Six Degrees of Separation, I'm going to mention some names. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Could be a word, a sentence, a story. Tiffany Haddish.
1: Um, Girls Trip. Um, People, literally, her and Niecy Nash came up to me um, on the carpet of barbershop, I don't know if we had done, and she said, I'm going to work with you one day. Um, I didn't know her like that. I thought she was. I think she's a gift to the world, just of how honest and real she is and her own experiences. But she, um, to see her explode and blow up on, on Girls Trip and put that movie on her back and and be given all that she's been given in in a way that she's you know earned it is. I'm so glad to be a part of that. The Wayans Brothers. Um. Family goals. I think that they're they're brilliant. I think that they are. Um, it's just you know to have that much talent in one family and and be that those you know group of handsome guys who, are all over you know tall handsome rich guys and you know and, and still stay a family and go through what they go through. So I I really like you know I look up to them in a lot of ways. Tyra Banks, um, <laughs> uh, best friend. You know, a person who gave me the power of no, let me have the power of no, um, uh, will always wonder if I should have married her, <laughs> if I should have tried harder when we were younger. Um, um, and just, you know, I'm and just someone I'm super, also super proud of.
0: Sitting down at your computer for the first time to write Girl's Trip.
1: No idea what it will become. That movie, we made that, from the time we were finished that script, finished that script to the time it was in theaters was eight months. Like that never happens, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was crazy. Like so like literally that whole process took less than a year from the time we started writing it to the time it was in theaters took less than a year. Um, And it, having that weekend, that first weekend, the same way, Brian Coogler told me an interesting story about Black Panther, that they wanted him to, you know, to put Thor or Iron Man or, you know, uh, the one of the Avengers, and he did not want to do it. He said, if I put those guys in this, one of those guys in this movie, and it opens overseas, you'll say Iron Man opened overseas, and he changed the narrative. And that's why I bring up Girls Trip. I think Girls Trip changed the narrative, like for what women could be what black films could, could be, what comedy could be. But, you know, Panther changed the narrative. They've always said that black movies don't open overseas or can't open. Anyone who's traveled knows that's counterintuitive to anything I've ever seen because everywhere you go, black culture is a lot of, you know, is embraced. But he knew that if he put any of those people in there that they would say that the movie didn't open. And since it was a Marvel movie, he knew that the, the, they were going to have to activate the machine. And it, was, it changed it. So now you can't say... You know, if you really activate the machine, that movie stopped a 30-year ban on public movies being shown in Saudi Arabia, that that, that type of thing. It changed everything. And so, um, Girl Strip is one of the things I was just most proud of, to be able to do something that changed the narrative in a lot of ways.
0: Ice Cube.
1: Um, he, hero, another one of my heroes. Um, N.W.A. Um, uh... I think he's someone that people don't understand how crazy it is for a dude with a curl and a Raiders hat to become a family movie mogul. In 25 years later, is is insane and brilliant. You would never know it because you know, you know that's not you know, but like brilliant in a different kind of way. Roseanne. Her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean honestly I feel like I see that she's going through some mental stuff of, Fuck her. she's a bad person she's a bad person and she's she's the worst version of what a bad person is <laughs> well, she, she, she is you know she's Trump and this and everything else rolled up into one because people who've worked with her she's just not nice to her staff she doesn't give credit you know what I'm saying she's you know, I think that she is a tormented, dark soul.
0: Does it shock you when people you know and respect know her and still try and work hard to align and get a job with her?
1: <sighs> yes and no. I mean, people need jobs. She's also very good to other comedians. I'm saying she does. She is a true kid. She's been very good to a lot of comedians. I think But at a certain time, it's like Whitney Cummings is a friend of mine, and I was just like, what are you doing?
0: Whitney is an executive producer on the show.
1: I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I don't know, I hate my life. And I'm like...
0: (laughs) 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 Um, Whitney, just so you know, she's the kind of person you'll just walk up to her and say, how you doing, Whitney? And she'll say something like, good, except I'm dead inside.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um... You know, I think I think Roseanne is in all those you know the people that would people take advantage and they will exploit the idea that people want to be in this business. and i that's why I'm seeing all the stuff with me too and things like that. it's I know it's real, you know what I'm saying I know that people want this so bad that other people will exploit it, and I think that that's just the worst kind of person. it's like pimping. you know what I'm saying it's like the worst kind of person,
0: Anthony Anderson,
1: um, my brother from another um I'm constantly worried about him um he is has the biggest heart in the world but he you know he has an uh, an inability to sort of turn off that personality and sort of, and he's becoming fame more famous than he ever thought he would become and I just I don't want people to take advantage of his generosity because he's one of the most generous people I've ever, you know, in my life, met, And he's, you know, he changed my life. I'll never, uh, he changed my life. He gave me, he trusted in me. He reads words, <laughs> things that he doesn't understand <clears throat> sometimes but gets behind me and, you know, does things and, you know, he did a speech, we did an episode called Hope and it was about, um, you know, it was about police brutality or whatever, but he did a speech about when, a, when Barack and Michelle got out the car during the inauguration and we talked about how afraid everyone was that Brock was going to get shot. And it was the first time like we had and he, and he and so unbelievable you're saying that cuz
0: I've never been around somebody who verbalized that and I was watching and I had an anxiety attack.
1: I felt like it wouldn't just kill him, it would kill my everyone, my family, my my my, my all my that would have taken so much, you know, in terms of, like, black culture has, has been, we're always waiting to get the other, you know, the the, the other shoe to drop. We're getting some, and having that taken from us would have, I don't know, I think it would have broke us. I don't think it would, beyond a civil war and all that, I think it would have broken us. And so that anxiety that I felt, and the way Anthony was able to put those words together, and trust me, um, you know, it just, it's been a, a I, I'm, that's the, scary part about leaving my show is that I don't know if I'll meet someone who has that amount of talent, but more so that amount of trust to just go with it. And so I I love him forever. Proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business, I honestly think is when I said, don't we, I didn't let them, you know, I refuse to air the episode. Um, It was the moment of standing up for something you know, um, that really mattered. And it's a close second when we did another episode called Lemons, and it was, you know, we got it put on, and, it's, and we wrote the episode, shot it, and got it put on in three weeks, you know what I'm saying, like, which is just almost impossible. I was able to still be in the conversation. It was about the discord between the Trump election, you know, and that was a big moment for me because, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal and a Democrat, but I also feel like, we had to get behind. It was people were just destroying and saying it was 63 million bad people. Who, you know, And I'm like, I think there were people who decided to vote for this guy that had their own reasons. I don't think there's 63 million people that were racist or that. But the narrative and the way the media was, was stroking it up was tearing us more and more apart. And to be able to get up to something and talk about someone and defend people for something I really didn't believe, and I really was upset that people voted for them, but to be able to defend those people in a way that allowed a conversation to start happening and let people start talking to each other, to me, I think that was probably the greatest episode of television I got a chance to do.
0: Your mm-hmm. biggest disappointment in show business mm-hmm. and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level?
1: Um. <sighs> My biggest disappointment in television, um it probably was um, it probably was not getting and I don't care about awards, but not getting an Emmy nomination for that episode of Lemons because I was so proud of it and I feel like it was you know, I'd done the you know, I got into a spiral and I did the research and had a it was the most The numbers on it, it was the biggest metric in terms of like conversation, a piece of television in like 20 years, when they like the the conversations and things that it started, it was like quantifiable. And I felt like a hater, you know what I'm saying? Because I felt like it wasn't about me, it was about what that would have said to the country into you know what I'm saying and so that was a big 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 failure for me that I didn't get a nomination for that and I don't care about nominations but I wanted people to just acknowledge that we had that conversation those are conversations that matter and it fueled me to go and say I'm gonna be louder you know and I'm gonna be louder and I'm gonna you know not let this you know silence me I'm gonna it's gonna you know I'm gonna, you know, do this through my kids. I'm gonna do this through my family. I'm gonna do this through my friends. I'm gonna keep saying things, and it led me to do that episode of Juneteenth, which I think my goal for that is to make Juneteenth an actual national holiday. You know, it's I, I'm I'm all for hot dogs and fireworks, but how could Independence Day be a real thing if everyone wasn't independent? You know, and how could you know? Why is the the actual day that the you know the biggest you know mark on this country's history is slavery you know um 400 years of human imprisonment and what that you know did to a people white and black that's a recessive gene that we all share You know, that like bad or good like we all share in that and to not acknowledge that on a national basis the day that it officially was supposed to end to me is just it's insane it's insane because it's still to this day one of the biggest things that we have in this country that's you know is the idea that we're we're divided and the notion that if we can't start coming together, you know what I'm saying, and, and starting with that thing that this country was built on, we're not we're we're not gonna make it. Especially with you know in a world where every day we're waking up, you know it's you know, and it's almost like a I think it's a a brilliant plan that Trump is throwing so many things at us that we don't know what to focus on. We've forgotten about kids in cages, you know, because he's you know, buddying up with Putin. And tomorrow we'll forget about that because you know, I lastly thing, I told my mom, my mom was like, how did you get this Senate card? I would not be crazy to me to see him walk on the Senate floor and blow someone's brains out. You know what I'm saying and and, I, and then run back to the White House and get his his lawyers to find some obscure thing in the Constitution. why there be it was as the defender of this. And then a Senate has to, a Senate committee has to get up and defend him, or try to put him on trial. And then he figures out this. It's just, it's. I know what a dictator looks like, and that this is what a dictator looks like. And I know dictators have a, a tendency to not want to not be in power. So I don't feel like he's going to. He'll figure out a way to go three terms. Um, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I think he's going to get elected again. You know, I think that the liberals have become so buttoned up that we are now afraid to talk, you know what I'm saying, and they, and they can say whatever they want, and the more that he says, the more people get behind him, we don't have a candidate, you know, piled up. we're so torn, you know, I thought the, the as much as I support, you know, Me Too and Time's Up and things, it was just a, I think a seed. that all of a sudden it was men against women, and it should have been women against monsters, you know, um, not, you know, so I just, I, 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 I think that that was, I'm, I'm afraid of that.
0: What advice do you have for the young person who grew up in a tough area trying to figure out how to get where they need to go and have the kind of career that you have?
1: Tell your stories. You know what I'm saying don't let people tell you that your story is not interesting. Talk about your story from a way that people don't think you're going to come at it, go behind it, you know what I'm saying, get on the side of it. Tell the devil's in the details. Tell your story whatever your position or your place is in life, whatever your particular thing is. <clears throat> It's amazing, and there's a way that you do it in a way that people don't see coming, and then all of a sudden, the thing that was abnormal becomes normal.
0: Kenya (laughs) Barris. Thank you so much, what an honor. Thank you all, Montreal, I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming, Kenya, unbelievable.
1: the dreamer they have all to gain. It's never quite over till so it all feels the same.
0: Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to Berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.